Hey, and welcome to Seven Days, Seven Stories, a masterclass on why we as women hate our bodies so much, about the stories that we've absorbed that have gotten us here, and the stories that can help dig us out. I'm Jillian Murphy, creator of the Food Freedom Body Love Method, and I'm so excited you're here as we spend seven days going from diet culture, the thin ideal, and one kind of beauty to a place of freedom and shift and change. Let's get going. All right, welcome. We are on day one and day one is going to be all about bad body fever and the thin ideal. So where we, uh, where we got these feelings of disliking our body and the belief that our body should look the way that we believe it should look. Um, but before we get into that, I just wanted to talk a little bit about the masterclass because it's our first day and, um, you know, just to make sure that everybody knows what to expect. So, this masterclass is going to be all audio. Um, I played around with whether to do audio or video. Um, but you know, I like the fact that I don't have to wear pants to do this. Or I mean, (laughs) I guess I don't really need to wear pants to do video either. Um, but you know, I like audio. I think it's portable. And I think that's the thing that I really wanted for you guys is that you could, um, take it out for a walk with you. You know, spring is here today. And, um, ideally, I mean, I'm in Canada, it's probably snowing, but it's March 21st. So let's hope fingers, hoping, um, take it out for a walk or, you know, put it on when you have a moment to cook dinner or, or, um, to sit down on the weekend or from the bath. You know, I just want you to be able to like sit and absorb it and or take it with you and listen to it while your kid is at swimming lessons. Whatever it is, I just want you to be able to listen and soak it in. Um, I'm going to encourage you to listen for what resonates, what feels familiar, what sounds like something that belongs to you, you know, something deep down that you're like, this feels true to me. But also, I encourage you to look for what doesn't resonate. You know, this process is really all about women being able to write their own story. And so you don't have to take all of it on. And I'm happy for you to come over to the Facebook group, Find Food Freedom and Love Your Body, and tell me about, you know, what is it you don't get? What is it that doesn't resonate as well as all the pieces that are really hitting home. So the other thing I should mention is that as, you know, a woman who works with with other women on food and body image, food is a huge piece of the puzzle and a huge part of what I do, like learning how to eat again in a normal, you know, quote unquote, normal way. But this masterclass is really just about body image. So we're not going to dive too, too much into the food side of things. Um, I feel like we could totally do this again sometime and focus on food, but for now, the focus is going to be body image. Okay. So today we're here and we're talking about bad body fever and the thin ideal, which is no joke, right? Like a conservative estimate is that 88% of North American women 
don't like their bodies. I've, I've seen other numbers that are more like 90, 90 plus. I've read stats where, you know, women would, would happily trade five years of their life to be at their ideal weight, um, who would trade a limb. I mean, this is some deep, dark stuff that we're willing to trade a limb on our body to be thinner. And I think, you know, what's so interesting to me is that we're in incredibly divisive times. You know, it's like we don't agree on anything. And yet everyone in our culture seems to agree that fat is the worst. Like fat is shit. And (laughs) I mean, I think that anytime we agree as a culture on something, it's time to start asking questions, right? It's like, it's not normal for humans to 100% agree about something. And if we do, I think we need to start asking, you know, like, how have we been brainwashed in some way? Because this is a brainwashing. There is very little about fat that we understand and know and perpetuate in the words that we use, the way that we speak, the way we, the, we, the way that we talk to people and ourselves, that's actually factual, that's fact-based. You know, it's all based on um, stereotypical stories that we've ingested and that, <coughs> <coughs> excuse me, that we continue to perpetuate. So let's dig into this today. Sorry, I had to take a cough break. I love that it's day one of the master class and I'm like fighting a terrible cough. Anyway, I'm going to do my best. I apologize. This is why people have sound editors. I don't have one. We're going to work with it. Okay, so, okay, day one, talking about bad body fever. And so I wanted to start with just a couple of formative memories um, for me about body and what it meant to have the right body, a good body. Um, I'm sure you have these two. You know, it's something you can think about when this class is over. Just like what memories pop up for you really early on about what having an ideal body might look like. And so for me, there was this movie that came out in 1989. And it was called She's Out of Control. And it was starring Tony Danza. And it was about a girl, and you know, this was like one of the first movies, it might have been the first movie that I ever really remember going to see in the theater. I think I may have gone to see, you know, another movie when I was younger, but this is the first one that I remember, which is just like proof of how terrible my childhood was. But, um, you know, I was nine, this movie was out, it was huge, and it was all about this teenage girl who was like, you know, the very classic, like, dorky you know, not popular, whatever. And then she spends this period of time exercising her ass off in her bedroom, getting her glasses off, getting her braces off, getting tanned and blonde. And, you know, all of a sudden she's beautiful. She's thin and tanned and blonde and gorgeous. And everyone is obsessed with her. And, you know, the premise of the story is about how her dad um, loses it because she's actually become so popular and guys are so into her and, like, so after her. But as a nine-year-old, it's like, 
oh my God, there's this scene where she comes down the stairs and there's this Frankie Valley song playing Venus, you know, I don't know the words. The girl with flowers in her hair. Ba 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 da 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 da. Ba 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 ba. Like, I know, whatever, I'm a terrible singer, but you know the song. And she's got like these thigh high white tights and this white lace skirt and this white shirt with a little white bolero lace jacket, like so 80s, 80s hair. And It's like the magical moment where she just is. And that will, that scene will forever be burned in my brain. You know, like it's a total image of like how to ideally be a teenager, you know? And then there's another really formative moment or, or, or sort of story. And again, this was visual which was um, the moment that Oprah revealed herself. I can't remember what year it was. I feel like it was 1986. I could be wrong. Um, she did like a liquid cleanse for, I don't know, 40 days. Maybe it was four months. I can't remember. It was a long period of time. And my mom watched Oprah every single day and it would be on when I came home from school. And, you know, she was obviously widely adored and very successful even at this point. But to see the chaos and the happiness and the joy when she like flings off this cape that she's wearing and she's in skinny jeans and you know it was like the ultimate success there was no doubt about it like there's a reason I remember it so clearly you know and then The third thing that comes to mind isn't really a memory at all because I don't remember it, but now having daughters of my own and going back to watch 80s movies or to read books that I loved as a kid, like I was just reading um, Sheila the Great by Judy Bloom to my kids about a week ago. And there are huge chunks of this story that I just skip. I just straight up stop reading and skip a page or two and keep going. And the kids are like, what happened? And I'm like, I can't read this to you. It's all about like, I mean, I haven't, I didn't tell them this, but it's like all about the fat girl, you know, and how gross she is. And they're making fun of her. And it's like, I don't even remember the depths of the messaging that I got as a kid about fat from books and movies and magazines and you know, in the 80s, it was pretty overt, right? Like it was like fat phobia was in your face. Diet culture was in your face. These days, people are a bit smarter. And so they're hiding it in wellness. It's still there. It's still totally there. But it's just, you know, they're working it a little bit. They're trying at least to hide it. (laughs) You know, but the 80s, it's just so interesting to go back and to read some of the books. And if you go back further, it's, it's worse, you know, like, Nancy Drew was another series of books that I I was obsessed with as a kid, like the old ones, you know, and it's all about, you know, not that Nancy's smart, that would have been amazing if it was just that she was smart, but it's really also about the fact that she and her friends are these very thin life, 
you know, that's the definition of feminine, right? And that's why they're actually so amazing. Not just because they solve the mysteries, but they're actually able to solve them because they're so thin and beautiful. And so, you know, it's a little bit more hidden today, but I feel like in these stories, what I learned as a kid, what I absorbed is A, you get admiration and success for being thin. And B, you get ultimate love and belonging and popularity from being thin. And as social beings, you know, humans are social beings. And as social beings, deep down, that survival, you know, it, it seems superficial, but it's not. It's so deep and it's so big. Being loved, belonging is part of our, our survival instinct to love and to be loved and to belong. And then to be admired and to be considered successful. You know, who doesn't want that, you know, in the culture that we live in? And so there are a million stories. There are a million examples. These are just the ones that stick out for me. Um, and I know you have yours. And that would be like if there was one sort of like homeworky thing from this class today would be to sit down and just wait for the images and the memories to pop up that stand out in your mind. Come to the Facebook group, find food freedom and love your body. And then tell us about them. What do you remember absorbing? And then, you know, if you could dig a little deeper, it would be so interesting to also hear about what what you don't remember but that now looking back and digging a little bit you can sort of start to start to bring to the surface so that's my memory but i want to actually read to you a little bit about bad body fever from the book when women stop hating their bodies by Jane Hirschman and Carol Munter it's a little bit of a dated book i actually don't love the whole thing um <clears throat> but there are some really good pieces in here on bad body fever and where it comes from. So I'm going to read that to you and then we'll continue to ex- explore, um, you know, where these feelings have come from. Bad body fever. You wake up in the morning and make your way into the bathroom to shower. Groggy with sleep, you turn on the water and take off your nightgown. As you're about to get in the shower, you see yourself in the full-length mirror. Yuck, you say. I feel so fat. You're not alone. Every moment of every hour of every day, millions of women of varying shapes and sizes utter some variation of the phrase, I feel fat. You might be fully clothed when the bad body thought strikes. You might catch a glimpse of yourself reflected in a shop window and gasp, God, my stomach is huge. You might be daydreaming while waiting for an appointment, only to find yourself thinking that your thighs are disgusting. Or you might be walking to your car when you suddenly feel huge. If this kind of self-loathing were experienced by only a small number of women, we would be justified in attempting to understand it in terms of individual psychopathology. The fact is, however, that fat feelings or bad body feelings occupy the minds and hearts of the vast majority of women. Bad body fever is neither viral nor bacterial, but it is epidemic. 
What does it mean when a woman says, in one way or another, I feel fat? Although feeling fat is a relatively recent addition to our language of feelings, unfortunately, it is a feeling that most women understand. Because we live in a society in which fatness is denigrated, each time a woman says, I feel fat, she is saying there is something wrong with me. Each time a woman feels fat, she's feeling self-hatred and self-disgust. The disturbing truth is that our culture fosters and supports this kind of self-denigration of women. What makes bad body fever flourish? Turn on the TV and pay particular attention to the commercials. Actually study them. What do you see? What do you hear? What are you being told about your female body? The message of commercials requires no deciphering when the product is a diet pill or exercise machine. But look at the commercials that have nothing to do with body altering. Who is selling the product? Do you look like her? Does anyone you know look like her? Probably not. More often than not, the actresses and models we see on television have bodies they did not come by naturally. It is likely that the body of the woman who is selling the car has been altered surgically and masked cosmetically. In addition, she's endured endless hours of workouts and many years of deprivation. When you open your favorite magazine and see a photograph of the same smiling woman with the same beautiful car, you can be sure that the photo has been retouched and airbrushed to achieve an even higher degree of blemish-free perfection. The image before you is a creation, not a reproduction. Commercials and ads, like the one just described, convey a dual message. The first message is by the car. The second message, which is subliminal, says in essence, if you look like me, people will pay attention to you and you might get nice things like this car. After hearing these messages over time, both women and men come to believe that all women should look like models. Of course, bad body fever takes time to develop. You did not start out life feeling like your body was deficient. Hopefully, your infant body was loved and cuddled and cared for. As a baby and toddler, when you were told how adorable you were, you actually felt adorable. You enjoyed your body and its functioning. You also enjoyed your mother's body. She felt warm, soft, cozy, and safe. Julia, a participant in a New York workshop, described her discovery that things were not as they appeared to her child's eyes. When I was very young, I thought my mother was beautiful, she recounted. And then one day I saw her look in the mirror and grimace at her reflection. I was confused. I asked her what was the matter and she said she looked ghastly without her makeup. I also remember her complaining that she had nothing to wear even though I thought her wardrobe was vast and magical. By the time I was six or seven, I realized that my beautiful mother did not think she was beautiful at all. And that made me sad, and it made me sad to see her not eating in order to get thinner. I remember wondering why someone as beautiful as my mother would think she was ugly. And then why did she tell me I was so pretty? What did it mean to be pretty? Was I pretty enough to look in the mirror and like what I see? 
Little girls learn a great deal about what is valued by how their mothers did or did not value themselves. As girls approach adolescence, the same eyes that once looked at them so adoringly suddenly become more critical as mothers feel the need to ensure their daughter's safety and success. You know, says the mother of a 13-year-old girl, you have to change before you go out. That top is too revealing. Or, you know, dear, you're developing a little belly. You'd better start watching what you eat. As that belly and those buttocks and breasts begin to develop, mothers begin to watch their daughters more closely and fathers begin to avert their eyes. And the world of men begins to take notice. There is no question that teenage girls feel a great deal of ambivalence about the shape of their bodies. On the one hand, they want to look good enough to be noticed. On the other hand, they don't want to be noticed at all. Look beautiful, they're told by their mothers, by every TV program they watch and every fashion magazine they read. But be careful. Young girls learn that it is good to be beautiful, but it is not good to elicit a certain type of attention. Seek to be desired and chosen, but fear it too. In the end, most young girls learn to wish more than they fear. They wish for a smaller nose, curlier or straighter hair, larger or smaller breasts, fuller or thinner issues or thinner bodies. As Susie Orbach writes in Fat is a Feminist Issue too, selling body insecurity to women and increasingly to men too is a vicious phenomenon. It relies on the social practices that shape a girl's growing up to make her receptive. Our culture is deeply ambivalent about women and their bodies. Women are idealized and denigrated, protected and abused, encouraged and discriminated against. Each decade promulgates a new shape for the female form. By the time most girls become women, they have confused and conflicting feelings about their place in the world. This confusion manifests itself as a dissatisfaction with their bodies and their appearance. Before long, their confused and conflicting feelings boil down to one issue, fat. In our culture, fat has come to represent flesh, female, and undesirable. For most girls, fat talk has become their mother tongue. Okay, so what's clear is that Bad body fever is widespread and it is widely absorbed mostly by women, although of course it's happening more and more to men as well. Um, But what's being sold to us in a really confusing way is basically that our bodies and our appearance and our looks are really a symbol of our worth and our value. And We as young girls get these incredibly confusing messages about what our bodies represent and how to use our bodies and what's appropriate and what's not. And it's all very confusing and contradictory and diminishing. But the only thing that seems to be really standard in all of it is that thin is the ideal, right? And Though bad body fever is an outgrowth of a culture that makes women feel inferior, um, it, it shows up in different ways in different cultures, right? In some parts of the world, we see genital mutilation of girls. But here, you know, in North America, less of that and more of body shaming and so, and more of this thin ideal. And so, 
then the next question sort of becomes for me, like where did the thin ideal come from? Because it wasn't the ideal across history. It's not the ideal across the world. And so, you know, not only asking the question like, you know, why do we feel so bad about our bodies? It's like, because we're constantly being measured against a body ideal that's only available to a really small percentage of women. But then also, why did that become the ideal? Like, at what point did it become the thing that we aspire to? And, you know, Naomi Wolf argues that the hatred of fat didn't actually emerge until women began to join forces and reject their inferior status. She says soft rounded hips and thighs and bellies were perceived without a doubt as desirable and sensual until women got the vote. And it appears that the more powerful women become, the more pressure there is for us to get rid of the padding and curves that make our bodies so different from the bodies of men. When we loathe ourselves for being fat, we are succumbing to this pressure. When we lash out at our stomachs, our thighs, our hips, our backsides, our breasts, and our cellulite, we are hating our femaleness. We live in a culture that demonstrates its ambivalence towards women in the violence of its pornography and the prevalence of rape and battering. When we hate our bodies, we are turning against ourselves. Um, Laura Frazier goes on to talk more about how the thin ideal developed in her book, Losing It, America's Obsession with Weight and the Industry that Feeds on It. And she does this really amazing, interesting breakdown of how, you know, in the, in the late 1800s, like a hundred years ago or more, she talks about the fact that actually being fat was the ideal. She says, accordingly, a hundred years ago, a beautiful woman had plump cheeks and arms, and she wore a corset and even a bustle to emphasize her full substantial hips. Women were sexy if they were heavy. In those days, Americans knew that a layer of fat was a sign that you could afford to eat well and that you stood a better chance of fighting off infectious diseases than most people. If you were a woman, having an extra adipose blanket also meant that you were probably fertile and warm to cuddle up next to on chilly nights. She goes on to explain how... Through the late 1800s and the early 1900s, um, as we as we began to have more access to food as as a culture, and it became more common for people to be fat, that then thin became the ideal. It's a class issue. She also talks about the fact that it became a morality issue. You know, there was a huge influx of immigrants at this time, and many of them were genetically shorter and rounder than the early American settlers. And so people, you know, it became this sort of race issue as well, where people didn't want to look like immigrants that were coming in to to feed the factory system. At the same time, in Europe, during the late 18th and early 19th centuries, many artists were actually catching tuberculosis that was making them sickly thin. And 
you know, it became a sign, like slenderness for these people became a sign that one possessed, as Laura writes, a delicate intellectual and superior nature, more morality. At the same time, you know, the medical community was trying to, um, they were believing that they were able to arrive at exact measurements for human beings, right? They were trying to, to use numbers and calculations to be able to control the human form. And while previously they were actually encouraging people to gain weight because plumpness was the ideal, you know, as the ideal shifted to thinness, they started to use their calculations to start to try and find ways to make human beings thinner. So, you know, what Laura talks about is that the cultural obsession with weight and this dream of thinness, you know, was actually a combination of factors. It was economic status symbols, morality, medicine, modernity. You know, as women left the home, they stopped wanting to look like females. They wanted to look more like the males that were in the workforce. It was about changing women's roles and consumerism because obviously as the 20th century got underway um, and slenderness became desirable, marketers began to see that keeping women feeling in lack as a money-making machine. And so there's all of these forces at work that began to create the thin ideal in the early 1900s. And then as Naomi Wolf describes in her book, The Beauty Myth, it was as women really began to step into power, as they got the vote, as they stopped being able to be controlled through domesticity, that the thin ideal became solidified and hardened in our culture. And from that point on, you know, the thin ideal has really dictated and controlled and monopolized female thoughts. And not only does it keep us feeling bad about ourselves, it keeps us distracted It steals our power. And so I just want you to think about that. I'm going to leave you with a story from Lindy West from her book, Shrill, which is so funny and so amazing. She's a fat feminist um, who writes so beautifully about living in a bigger body in our culture and, and what that feels like. But I just want you, as you finish today's class, to think about how the bad body thoughts that you have and the beliefs that you have about what weight you should be at were not born of you. They were not born in you. They were fed to you. They were created. They were invented. It's a story. And I want you to ask yourself if it's worth it anymore. If all of this trying to achieve this ideal that's been fabricated is worth your peace your peace of mind, your brain space, your creativity. I just want you to consider that. Okay, so last thing for today. Tomorrow, we are going to be talking about one kind of beauty. So getting a little bit away from just weight and thinness and specifically into um, how we absorb what's beautiful and desirable and what that looks like. Um But yeah, last story from Lindy West's Shrill. In my early 20s, I was working a summer job as a cashier at an upscale general store and gift shop, 
or as it was known around my house, the bourgeois splendor ceramic bird emporium and money fire, <laughs> when a tan, wiry man in his 60s strode up to my register. I remember him looking like the infamous Silver Lake walking man, if anyone remembers him, or if Jack Lalonde fucked a tanning bed and a Benjamin Button came out. <laughs> Do you want to lose some weight, he asked with no introduction. I laughed uncomfortably, hoping he'd go away. Ha ha ha, uh, doesn't everyone? Ha ha ha. He pushed a brochure for some smoothie cleanse pyramid scheme over the counter at me. I glanced at it and pushed it back. Oh, no thank you. He pushed it toward me again more aggressively. Take it. Believe me, you need it. I'm not interested, I insisted. He glared for a moment and then said, So you're fine looking like that and getting cancer? My ears roared. That's rude, was all I could manage. I was still small then, inside. He laughed and walked out. Over time, the knowledge that I was too big made my life smaller and smaller. I insisted that shoes and accessories were just my thing because my friends didn't realize that I couldn't shop for clothes at a regular store and I was too mortified to explain it to them. I backed out of dinner plans if I remembered the restaurant had particularly narrow aisles or rickety chairs. I ordered salad even if everyone else was having fish and chips. I pretended to hate skiing because my giant men's ski pants made me look like a smokestack and I was terrified my bulk would tip tip me off the chairlift. I stayed home as my friends went hiking, biking, sailing, climbing, diving, exploring. I was sure I couldn't keep up, and what if we got into a scrape? They couldn't boost me up a cliff, or lower me down an embankment, or squeeze me through a tight fissure, or ho- hoist me up the hot jaw, ho- hoist me from the hot jaws of a bear. I never revealed a single crush. Convinced that the idea of my disgusting body as a sexual being would send people, even people who loved me, into fits of projectile vomiting, or worse, pity. I didn't go swimming for a fucking decade. As I imperceptibly rounded the corner into adulthood, 14, 15, 16, 17, I watched my friends elongate and arch into these effortless, exquisite things. I waited. I remained a stump. I wasn't jealous exactly. I loved them, but I felt cheated. We each get just a few years to be perfect. I get choked up reading this. That's what I've been sold. To be young and smooth and decorative and collectible. I was missing my window. I could feel it pulling at my navel, my obsessively hidden, hated navel. And I scrabbled, desperate and frantic. Deep down, in my honest places, I knew it was already gone. I had stretch marks and cellulite long before 20. But they tell you that if you hate yourself hard enough, you can grab just a tail feather or two of perfection. Chasing perfection was your duty and your birthright as a woman, and I would never know what it was like, this thing, this most important thing for girls. I missed it. I failed. I wasn't a woman. You only get one life, and I missed it. There is a certain kind of woman. She is graceful. She is slim. Yes, she would like to go kayaking with you. On her frame, angular but soft, a baggy t-shirt is coated as low-maintenance not sloppy. A ponytail is sleek, not tennis ball on top of a mini fridge. 
Not only can she pull off ugly clothes, like sports sandals or boyfriend jeans, they somehow make her beauty thrum even more clearly. She is thrifted J. Crew. She can put her feet up on a chair and draw her knees to her chest. She can hold an ocean in her clavicle. People go on and on about boobs and butts and teeny waist, but the clavicle is the true benchmark of female desirability. It is a fetish item. Without visible clavicles, you might as well be a meatloaf in the sexual marketplace. And I don't mean meatloaf the person who has probably gotten laid lots of times, despite the fact that his clavicle is buried so deep as to be mere urban legend, because our culture doesn't have a creepy sexual fixation on the bones of meaty men. Only women. Show us your bones, they say, if only you were nothing but bones. America's monomaniacal fixation on female thinness isn't a distant abstraction, something to be pulled apart by academics in women's studies classrooms or leveraged for traffic in shallow body-positive listicles. Check out these 11 fat chicks who you somehow still kind of want to bang. Number seven is almost like a regular woman. It is a constant, pervasive taint that warps every single woman's life. And by extension, it is in the amniotic fluid of every major cultural shift. Women matter. Women are half of us. When you raise every woman to believe that we are insignificant, that we are broken, that we are sick, that the only cure is starvation and restraint and smallness, when you pit women against one another, keep us shackled by shame and hunger, obsessing over our flaws rather than our power and potential, when you leverage all of that to sap our money and our time, that moves the rudder of the world. It steers humanity toward conservatism and walls and the narrow interests of men and keeps us adrift in waters where women's safety and humanity are secondary to men's pleasure and convenience. I watched my friends become slender and beautiful. I watched them get picked and wear J. Crew and step into small boats without fear. But I also watched them starve and harm themselves, get lost and sink. They were picked by bad people, people who hurt them on purpose, eroded their confidence and kept them trapped in an endless chase. The real scam is that being bones isn't enough either. The game is rigged. There is no perfection. I listened to Howard Stern every morning in college. I loved Howard. I still do, though I had to achingly bow out as my feminism solidified. In a certain light, feminism is just the long, slow realization that the stuff you love hates you. (laughs) When I say I used to listen to Stern, a lot of people look at me like I said I used to eat cat meat. But what they don't understand is that the Howard Stern show is on the air for hours and hours every day. Yes, there is gleeful, persistent misogyny, but the bulk of it, back when I was a daily obsessive at least, was Howard seeking validation for his neuroses, Robin cackling about her runner's diarrhea, Artie detailing the Levithian sandwich he'd eaten yesterday in a heroin stupor, then weeping over his debasement, Howard wheedling the truth out of cagey celebrities like a surgeon, Howard buoying the news with supernatural comic timing and a Sagrada Familia of inside jokes and references and memories and love and people's lives willingly gutted and splayed open and dissected every day for the sake of good radio. It was magnificent entertainment. It felt like family. Except for female listeners, membership in that family came at a price. Howard would do this thing, 
the thing I think that most listeners associate with the show, where hot chicks could turn up at the studio and he would look them over like a fucking horse vet, running his hands over their withers and flanks, inspecting their bite and the sway of their back, honking their massive horse jugs and tell them in intricate detail what was wrong with their bodies. There was literally always something If they were 110 pounds, they could stand to be 100. If they were 90, gross. Why'd you do that to your body, sweetie? If they were a C cup, they'd be hotter as a double D. They should stop working out so much. Those legs are too muscular. Their 29-inch waist was subpar. Come back when it's a 26. And then there was me. 225, 40-inch waist. No idea what bra size because I'd never bothered to buy a nice one because who'd see it? Frumpy, miserable, cylindrical, the distance between my failure of a body and perfection stretched away beyond the horizon. According to Howard, even girls who were there weren't there. If you want to be part of this community that you love, I realized, this family that keeps you sane in a shitty, boring world, this million-dollar enterprise that you fund with your consumer clout just as much as male listeners do, you have to participate with a smile in your own disintegration. You have to swallow every day that you are a secondary being whose worth is measured by an arbitrary, impossible standard administered by men. When I was 22, all I wanted was to blend in. That rejection was crushing and hopeless and lonely. Years later, when I was finally ready to stand out, the realization that the mainstream didn't want me was freeing and galvanizing. It gave me something to fight for. It taught me that women are an army. When I look at photographs of my 22-year-old self, so convinced of her own defectiveness, I see a perfectly normal girl, and I think about aliens. (laughs) If an alien came to Earth, a gaseous orb, or a polyamorous cat person, or whatever... It wouldn't even be able to tell the difference between me and Angelina Jolie, let alone rank us by hotness. It'd be like, uh, yeah, so those are the ones that have the the under-the-face fat sacks, and the other kind has that dangly pants nose. Fuck, these things are gross. I can't wait to get back to the omnidirectional orgy gardens of Laxnoid 7. The perfect body is a lie. I believed in it for so for a long time and I let it shape my life and shrink it my real life populated by my real body don't let fiction tell you what to do in the omnidirectional orgy gardens of laxnoid 7 no one cares about your arm flab